Hi, welcome back to The Horrors. Hi, I'm Elise. I'm Shay. Welcome to 2024. We are here in 2024 <laughs> with a New Year's themed movie. We are. This is a big one. It is a big one. This week and next week, we are tackling quite the pair of movies in the horror world. One a classic, and one I think is going to be seen as a classic in a couple years. Oh, you think it's kind of like marinating on greatness? It's marinating. It's only four years old. I personally loved watching these back to back because I think they pair with each other so well. But I also think the thing about the movie we're covering next week is that you could watch it independent of its origin story and still enjoy it just as much, which I do appreciate. But we're starting it off with The Shining. Now, did you and I watch this movie together before? No, no, never. See, I always get this one mixed up with, was it American Psycho? Yes. That was like one of the first (laughs) ones we ever watched together. Yes. 1980 classic lots of opinions on it lots of theories on it Mm -hmm. and we have some of those for you today and only a couple ladies very few ladies but memorable ladies definitely for a lot of different reasons we're starting off with wendy torrance played by hello i'm shelly duvall (laughs) award-winning actress and producer known for three women popeye fairy tale theater telltales and legends and many more tv film and producing credits she also founded a production company called think entertainment which created screen adaptations of written works to air on showtime though she took a large hiatus from acting she's set to appear in the upcoming horror thriller the forest hills cool right And then we have the Grady twins, (laughs) who are played by Lisa and Louise Burns. Diving into some pre-plot trivia, this is directed by Stanley Kubrick, who is known for A Clockwork Orange, 2001, A Space Odyssey, Eyes Wide Shut, Full Metal Jacket, lots of other things. He's a very influential director. Now, the screenplay was written by Kubrick and Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist Diane Johnson, who, when I was doing research on her, was once in a writing group with Sylvia Plath, which I found to be super interesting. That is super interesting. And the movie is based off of the 1977 novel by Stephen King. I feel a little silly even saying what he's known for because he's the fucking king of horror. (laughs) But he's at least known on this podcast from Carrie, 1976. Wow, I can't believe we've only done one other Stephen King thing. I think we have to do more. I think we do. This might be the year. So going into some general context of how this came to be. So after a lack of commercial success of the 1975 film Barry Lyndon, Kubrick wanted to try a horror movie and decided to use a horror novel as the basis. Stephen King was told that Kubrick had his staff bring him stacks of horror books as he planted himself in his office to read them all. Reportedly, Kubrick's secretary heard the sound of each book hitting the wall as the director flung it into the reject pile after reading the first few pages. So dramatic. He is dramatic. (laughs) Finally, one day, the secretary noticed that it had been a while since she had heard the thud of another writer's work biting the dust. She walked in to check on her boss and found Kubrick deeply engrossed in reading a copy of The Shining. King was at this time already a best-selling author and was receiving further fame after the film adaptation of Carrie in 1976. King had written an initial draft of the script, but Kubrick denied it for being too literal of an adaptation of the novel, which is where Kubrick brought in Diane Johnson. Johnson, however, was not a fan of King's novel, calling it pretentious and saying The Shining is not a part of great literature. (laughs) It is scary, it is effective, and it works. But it is interesting to see how a very bad book could also be very effective. That is such a puzzling thing to say about a book that you take and turn into a movie. All the time he spent with this and he doesn't even think it's good. (laughs) 
Well, Diane didn't think it was good. Oh, Diane said this. Yeah, Cooper thought it was very good, uh-huh. but Johnson didn't think it was she good. She was like, we have to adjust this. We do, and he <laughs> helped him do it. So despite Kubrick being a fan of The Shining, the book, a condition Kubrick made on taking on the project would be that he would change the novel, which he very much did to King's dismay. Mm. And we'll talk about some of those departures from the plot after the plot. But are you ready to get into it? I'm ready. How do we open? We have some overhead nature shots. There's a car winding down an isolated forested road. This is a very long intro, really setting in that we are moving to an isolated location very far away from the rest of civilization. And there's also scary, ominous music, a pretty iconic soundtrack for this film. Then we get a title, well, not really a title card, but more like a chapter card. We have The Interview, and we settle on Jack Torrance, who is played by Jack Nicholson. He has arrived at the Overlook Hotel for an interview with the hotel manager, Mr. Ullman. Ullman is telling Jack that the hotel is closed over the winter because the winters are so severe. We're only open from May to the end of October, I believe. And you and your family would be staying here all the other months to look over the grounds while the hotel is closed. You'll likely be snowed in most of the winter, again, because of the intense Colorado winters up in the mountains. And he even warns him of a risk of cabin fever. Uh, Apparently in 1970, just 10 years prior, the former overseer ended up murdering his wife and twin daughters because of being cooped up in the hotel for so long and going quote unquote mad. This guy's name was Charles Grady, and he killed his family before ultimately taking his own life. This doesn't really seem like it bothers Jack too much. He really wants to go to the hotel because he was a former teacher, he's looking for something different, and he thinks this is going to be the perfect environment for him to work on a book that he is writing. Meanwhile, we are shown Jack's family, so his wife Wendy and his son Danny, eating lunch together. Danny is asking Wendy if they're really going to live in that hotel over the winter, and Wendy assures that it'll be fun and that his friend Tony must be excited. Now, Tony is Danny's supposed imaginary friend, and the way that Danny evokes Tony or Tony's opinion is by waving his finger up and down and talking in a deeper voice, and it sounds very comical. He has Tony say, no, I ain't Mrs. Torrance. And Wendy is like musing Tony that it's going to be fun. Don't worry about it. They're all going to have a good time. Later, Danny is alone and talking to Tony, quote unquote, in the mirror. And he asks Tony if he thinks his dad will get the job. And Tony responds, he already did. He's going to phone Wendy and tell her in a few minutes. And then that happens. Mm -hmm. So we're getting the sense that this being or this imaginary friend, as he's been called, certainly has some foresight as to what is happening. Danny asks Tony why he doesn't want to go to the hotel, and Tony initially doesn't tell him, but then Tony shows him a vision of blood flowing out of an elevator, which is very iconic imagery from the movie, and two sisters in blue dresses holding hands. This seems very much to upset Danny, and we get a fade out, and when we are fading back in, there is a nurse checking on Danny and asking if he noticed anything strange while he was brushing his teeth in the bathroom because he had passed out and only woke to his mother trying to wake him up. Danny said that he was just talking to Tony. You know, the nurse is like, oh, is that like one of your animals? And he says, no, it's a little boy that lives in my mouth. <laughs> the nurse and Wendy are talking and the nurse is trying to assure the mother, listen, there's nothing physically wrong with him. Sometimes kids just have episodes and begins to ask Wendy, when did Tony show up? And Wendy says that Tony's been around since nursery school because Danny didn't adjust well to school after he had an injury. 
Jack had accidentally dislocated Danny's shoulder. And after the doctor looks concerned, she goes on to say, it was just one of those things. It was just purely an accident. My husband had been drinking and wasn't exactly in a great mood. Danny had scattered some of his papers all over the room. Jack grabbed his arm and pulled them away from him. It's the sort of thing you do a hundred times in the park or on the street, but this particular occasion, my husband just used too much strength and injured his arm. And the entire time, Wendy has a lit cigarette. She's smiling while she's talking about this. But you're kind of beginning to see Wendy start over-justifying some of Jack's actions, especially ones that are fueled by alcohol or anger. And then Wendy goes on to say something did come out of it all because Jack ended up going sober after this incident. And he's been sober for about five months. Yeah, and I think this scene is particularly interesting after Jack's interview because we already get the sense that in addition to this background story about this injury, which is concerning, there seems to be a broader disconnect between Jack and his family. For example, obviously we see that Danny, or his parents call him Doc sometimes, is very reluctant about this move. He seems hesitant. He has one of these quote-unquote episodes. But when we see Jack in his interview accept the position, he says that his family will be so excited. So again, there's a disconnect here between Jack specifically and his wife, Wendy, and Danny. The next part is closing day. The three family members arrive at the hotel on the last day that it's open so they can get the tour before moving in for the winter season. Jack casually brings up the Donner family (laughs) on their car ride to the hotel, which is like a family who was stranded on their covered wagon journey to California and they cannibalized one another. I wonder if there's a movie about the Donner family. Cannibal Power Hour. Well, it's literally funny (laughs) because I wrote that because Wendy's like, stop talking about this in front of Danny. And Danny's like, don't worry, mom. I know all about cannibalism. I saw it on the TV. And I was like, us during Cannibal Power Hour. (laughs) You know all about cannibalism. Don't worry about it. (laughs) But they end up making it to the hotel. Danny goes off on his own to the game room where he has a run-in right away with the twins in the blue dress. He seems kind of freaked out, but it's a short-lived moment. Meanwhile, Wendy and Jack are getting a tour of their apartment and the rest of the grounds. They arrive to the gold ballroom. And Wendy even says pink and gold are my favorite colors. Did you also notice when they were touring outside near the hedge maze, Ullman casually drops that the overlook was built on an Indian burial ground? Uh, No, I missed that. Yeah, because they breeze right by it and it's never brought up again. Um, Because that's where we get the context that there's a, a snowmobile that in case they do get snowed in for some reason, oh, here's the snowcat. Mm-hmm. But he's talking about the history of the hotel. It's like, yeah, it was built on an Indian burial ground. And even while they were building it, they had to fend off all of these what? attacks. And I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? I literally miss that whole part we're gonna breeze right by that okay Okay. and then they don't really bring it up again and it just i mean obviously it feels displaced yes maybe expected for the time in a bad way but still like like, what yeah okay weird i guess there's strange way of trying to justify the fuck shit that's about to go down in this place i guess so but it also doesn't make sense because all the people in the hotel who wreak havoc are just like a bunch of rich white aristocrats from like 1920 Eventually, they make their way to the kitchen where we meet the head chef of the hotel, Dick. He talks to Wendy and Danny for a little while. And then there's an interesting moment where he somehow knows to call Danny Doc. And Wendy even brings up, it's so strange that he knew to call Danny Doc because she doesn't remember calling him that in Dick's presence. But Dick just says maybe he heard it mentioned earlier and he just picked up on it. Also, I feel like Doc is kind of like a generic enough nickname that it's not so strange that maybe that's what he would have called a young boy at the time. I'm not sure. But I think it's supposed to establish that maybe this character might know something or something maybe creepy or sinister might be going on. 
But when Wendy goes off on her own to get a tour of the rest of the pantries, Dick sits with Danny for a little while, and it seems like they develop an instant kinship. Dick tells Danny that when he was young, he and his grandmother used to have conversations without talking, and his grandmother would call the gift The Shining, and that's how he knew Danny was called Doc. He had somehow heard Danny's thoughts. He asks Danny how long he's known about his gift to converse like that, and Danny says that Tony, his imaginary friend, tells him that he should not talk about the gift. And Dick asks if Tony ever said anything about the hotel, but Danny isn't sure. Danny asks Dick if he's scared of this place, and Dick says that there's something special about the place that shines. And Danny asks if something bad happened here, and Dick says that events can leave traces behind good and bad. So based on Dick's kind of evasive answers, it sounds like something bad did happen here, but it also seems like he knows he's having a conversation with a little boy. He wants to be honest without being scary. It seems like right away Dick has this like protective inclination toward Danny, especially because they establish right away that they have this mutual gift for this sort of telepathic communication or spiritual connection. The last thing that Danny asks Dick is, what about room 237? You're scared of room 237, aren't you? What happened in there? And Dick is like, you have no business going in there, stay out of there, which of course is going to pique Danny's interest. So then we get another chapter card for a month later. Wendy rolls a food cart in her cute little robe and slippers through the (laughs) hallways as Danny rides his tricycle around the hallways and Jack sleeps in till like 1130. (laughs) Yeah, damn. Wendy presents him breakfast in bed and asks him to go on a walk with her, but Jack insists that he should write first, even though he hasn't had any good ideas yet. Jack goes on to say that he loves it here, he fell in love with it right away, and when he interviewed, it felt like he'd been here before, like he almost knew what would be around every corner. Later, we see Wendy and Danny running around outside in the hedge maze while Jack plays wall ball by himself. I loved that shit in elementary school. I do not blame him. Yeah, wall ball is iconic. Then we hit Tuesday. Wendy makes dinner and watches news on a tiny, tiny TV about a big, big storm coming. So while Danny's back to riding his tricycle, we see the iconic carpet making an appearance. Yes. And he rolls by room 237, stares it down, gets off his bike as if he's going to approach the door, but it's locked. But as he touches the doorknob, he sees flashing visions of these twins again. So that obviously makes him afraid. He gets back on the bike and rides away. While downstairs, Jack is clicking away on his typewriter. You know, Wendy's coming in just trying to make conversation, being like, oh, it's supposed to snow tonight. And we're already starting to see some bad shit out of Jack. He's like, well, what do you want me to do about it? Like, what the fuck? She's like, don't be a grouch. How about I go and come back with dinner later and maybe I can read some of your work? And he goes on to say, Wendy, let me explain something to you. Whenever you come in here and interrupt me, you're breaking my concentration. You're distracting me. Understand? And then he's like ripping up the pages he just typed. We're going to make a new rule. Whenever I'm in here and you hear me typing or whether you don't hear me typing, whatever the fuck I'm doing in here, that means I'm working. And that means don't come in. Do you think you can handle that? Why don't you start right now and get the fuck out of here? The scariest part about this movie is like Wendy being stuck with this man. Yeah. The ghosts, yeah, that's not comfortable. But this guy, he's awful the whole time. Like, I remember thinking before I watched this movie that I was going to see more of a progression for his character, but he kind of sucks the whole time. But I guess maybe we're supposed to think they've been here for a month. This hotel might already be starting to have an effect on him. Mm -hmm. But either way, it's frustrating to see the dynamic between he and Wendy. 
It's Thursday, a couple days later. Wendy and Danny are playing outside as Jack just blankly stares out the window. It looks like maybe at them. This is where we're also getting the second hint of this like weird sonar sound whenever there seems to be some kind of interference with a ghost. Mm. So we saw this in the game room the first time where Danny sees the twins for the first time. There's like this weird sonar sound. And now we see Jack with this like thousand yard stare, which is actually a meme on TikTok right now, which I think is so fucking funny. <laughs> I've seen this image before exactly. several times. And that's the sonar sound. So I'm guessing that this is just proving to us that he's being influenced by something. Yeah. And Jack Nicholson's face is so expressive. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to see. Saturday, Jack is typing away yet again, and Wendy is trying to place a phone call out of the hotel, but it seems like the phone lines are down. And again, it is snowing very hard at this point. The storm is days long. Wendy ends up using the radio that's in the main office to contact the police station and ask if the telephone lines are indeed down. And the officer who picks up her call confirms that they are. Wendy asks if the phone lines will be repaired soon, and the officer is like, maybe in the spring. It's like <laughs> literally November right now. Yeah. They have a long time before the phone lines are going to be repaired, especially because it seems like the hotel is the only thing out there. It's just not priority. And I also think Wendy seems so lonely at this point. As she's talking to the officer, she says, it was real nice talking to you. Like this random guy. And she was just happy to have talked to somebody for 30 seconds. Who was kind to her. Yes. Ugh, so frustrating. Meanwhile, Danny is on his tricycle again, which is like, how cool to be a kid and just be able to ride your tricycle around this massive hotel. Inside, especially. Oh, it's so cool. He's keeping himself nice and busy, and he runs into the twins on his bike again. And this time, the twins speak to him. They ask him if he will come play with them forever and ever and ever and ever. As they're talking to him, he gets these flashing visions of them standing before him holding hands as they are, and then also their murdered bodies laying in the hallway with blood smeared everywhere. And we see these images kind of strobe in and out. Obviously, Danny is catching visions of what we can assume was their murder from 1970. Danny calls on Tony, who reminds him of what Dick said, it's just like pictures in a book it's not real. So we can see Danny trying to convince himself, okay, this isn't real. I'm imagining things. It's just pictures in a book. This can't hurt me. So either later or the next day, Danny and Wendy are watching TV together downstairs and he really wants his fire truck. Jack is sleeping. And Wendy's like, he just went to bed. So again, we're really seeing that he's on this like weird erratic schedule. Danny says he'll be quiet and Wendy relents to go let him get his fire truck as long as he's careful and quiet. So Danny enters very carefully, but Jack is awake on his bed. Jack beckons him over and holds him and is asking him, you know, are you having a good time? I want you to have a good time. Do you like this hotel? Saying, I want you to like it here. I wish we could stay here forever and ever and ever. It's imitating those twins who just scared the shit out of Danny in the hallway. And then Danny asks, Dad, you would never hurt me or mommy, would you? And then he's like, your mother tell you that? Like, why'd you say that? He's like, I love you, Danny. I would never do anything to hurt you ever, which liar, <laughs> liar. <laughs> we are now on Wednesday. We have another snowy exterior. Danny's playing with trucks on the creepy carpet and a ball rolls up out of nowhere. And Danny's wearing a very cute sweater. It's a NASA sweater. It's a NASA sweater. We're going to come back to that. We are. As he goes to investigate, calling for his mom, he sees there's a door open off to the side, and it's room 237. Wait, can I say, so my dorm room was room 238, and my classroom is right next to the computer lab, which is room 237. Whoa. I feel like 
You're so close to it. My rooms are just next to 237. Before Danny even goes and investigates this room, Wendy is, I wrote, fucking around in the boiler room. Well, I wrote doing the job that Jack isn't doing. Yeah, which I love that you pointed that out because not ever once do we see Jack doing any actual caretaker work for the grounds of this hotel. Yeah, because something that he has to do, especially in the boiler room, is maintain levels, make sure that different parts of the hotel are heated at different times so that pipes don't freeze, and especially letting steam off of the boiler. Otherwise, the place would fucking explode. Mm-hmm. That's going to become important later. And she hears somebody yelling. It's Jack. He is asleep having a nightmare at his desk in the lounge. And she goes to him and wakes him up and, of course, asks what's wrong. And he says that he's just had a nightmare, that he killed her and Danny. And he says, but I didn't just kill you. I cut you up into little pieces, which is very disturbing. I think Wendy seems to handle it like a champ. She doesn't seem to take it too seriously. I said too calmly, she reassures him. (laughs) But then Danny enters the room and silently approaches Wendy. And as he gets closer, she also seems to sense something is wrong because he's not responding to her when she's trying to tell him to go play. She sees bruising on his neck as if somebody grabbed it and his shirt collar is ripped. She asks him what happened. He does not respond to her. So then she soon accuses Jack of doing it as she scoops Danny up and runs up the stairs and out of the lounge. Yeah, she screams, you did this to him, didn't you? How could you? You son of a bitch. Mm. Like, all this kind Mm -hmm. of stuff. So Jack obviously is very shocked by this. But nonetheless, he goes shadow boxing angrily through the hallway, (laughs) throwing his arms about, having a fit. And then he enters the ballroom and approaches the bar. He sits on a stool, sees that everything is completely empty, and just goes on to, like, rub his eyes and say, God, I'd give anything for a drink. I'd give my goddamn soul for a glass of beer, which I found that line to be interesting because did he, like, accept a trade in that moment? Oh, yeah. It's very, like, oh, what's that story about the deal with the devil, like, the guy who gives his soul for knowledge? I can't remember, but yeah, you're totally right. It does feel like that comment is what really brings on these next level hallucinations. Whereas previously we had an empty bar with no alcohol. And now when Jack opens his eyes, there is a fully stocked bar with a bartender named Lloyd. (laughs) In his conversation with Lloyd, he says that he's having a little problem with the sperm bank. We've watched a lot of movies. We have. This moment really caught me off guard. At first, I'm so dumb that I was like, oh, is Jack like infertile? Like, I literally thought he was talking about like a literal sperm bank. No, but he's no, he's that's what he's yeah. calling his wife. Like, I was so caught off guard. I knew he sucked, but I didn't even realize he was this crude. But then he goes on to say he would do anything for Danny, but quote, that bitch won't let him forget about when he accidentally hurt him months prior. He has this whole conversation with the bartender as he's knocking back drink after drink when suddenly Wendy runs into the room crying to tell Jack that there is a crazy woman in one of the rooms upstairs and that is who tried to strangle Danny. He even initially calls her crazy, but then he asks what room it is because he'll go inspect it. Meanwhile, we are back with Dick. He is watching TV in his bed somewhere else. He's in Miami. He's in Miami. (laughs) There's the return of the sonar sound. So you could tell that he might be experiencing some shining and Dick's eyes go wide as he becomes horrified by whatever he's seeing. And he's seeing visions of room 237, Danny shaking in his bed, a POV shot of someone walking into the room. So like he's being horrified by this. 
And we're taken into one of those perspectives where somebody is walking into room 237, pushing the bathroom door open and seeing someone obscured behind a shower curtain laying in the bathtub. We come to find out that this person is Jack watching and he watches as a beautiful naked woman opens the curtain, steps outside of the tub and approaches him. She touches his chest very sensually. They begin to kiss. And as Jack kisses her, he opens his eyes to look at the mirror and sees the woman's reflection full of bed sores. And this woman is older and not who he had envisioned. So he is repelled from this. He's backing up very fearfully as this naked old lady with bed sores <laughs> laughs evilly mm-hmm. and he runs out of the room. Dick tries calling the Overlook with no luck. He obviously is worried about Danny at this point. Jack returns to their apartment saying that I didn't see anything in room 237. Wendy's still very upset and he's asking, well, what about the bruises on his neck? And Jack's like, well, maybe Danny did it to himself. Yeah, which how could he? But he says, quote, once you rule out his version for what happened, there is no other explanation is there. And he reminds her of Danny's quote unquote episode before arriving at the Overlook. But meanwhile, we see that Danny is fully awake in his room, having visions of the conversation that's currently happening next door with his parents. So he's able to kind of look on to these conversations he's not physically present for. As he's having this vision as well, he's seeing the blood flooding the halls again from the elevator. So again, he's in a very bad place. And then Jack yells at Wendy that he's not going to let her fuck up his life again. Yeah, it's so fucking typical of you to create a problem like this when I finally have a chance to accomplish something, when I'm really into my work. I've let you fuck up my life so far, but I'm not going to let you fuck this up for me. I mean, wow. She is sobbing in her bed. Like, this is so hard to watch. It is. Meanwhile, Jack is having a temper tantrum, throwing shit around the kitchen, walking very pompously through the halls, and he hears some singing. He sees a hallway full of party supplies and enters the ballrooms again, seeing the party in full swing. He gets more ghost bourbon (laughs) and he accidentally has someone spill something on him. So as he goes to the bathroom to clean himself up, he meets Grady, the man who was the caretaker 10 years ago, dressed as a butler, helping him clean himself off. And Jack even says upon hearing the butler's name as Grady, he asks, you know, have I seen you somewhere before? Weren't you once the caretaker here? And Grady initially says no. And Jack continues to ask questions. Are you married? Grady responds, I have a wife and two daughters. And then Jack is tired of playing this game. He knows who this man is. He says, Mr. Grady, you were the caretaker here. You chopped your wife and daughter into little bits and you blew your brains out. Grady insists he has no recollection. He says, you are the caretaker. You've always been the caretaker. I should know, sir. I've always been here. So I feel like this moment, kind of in addition to that line Jack says earlier about, I feel like I've been here before. I knew it was around every corner. This line also establishes some kind of weird like breakdown of the time-space continuum, which I think kind of comes into play a little bit later. But I also love the bathroom where the scene takes place. It reminded me of Suspiria. Mm -hmm. It's like a completely bright red bathroom with white urinals and sinks and appliances. And the contrast just reminded me of the bright, vibrant colors and contrasts in Suspiria. So Grady goes on to try to give Jack some advice and asks if Jack is aware that his son is trying to bring an outside party into the situation. Here is where we get some crazy racist dialogue that Shay and I simply will not repeat. But it has to do with Dick being the outside party who has, you know, established this connection with Danny. And Dick is a black man. 
And we get some racist dialogue here about Dick, which, again, I was really shocked. by. They, they yeah. literally say it like three times in a row. I was mm-hmm. like, you guys, just stop. But also, and I will cycle back to this moment later because I have so much to say about Dick's character and probably even more so in our next episode about Dr. Sleep. I feel like one of the reasons I like Dr. Sleep so much is because I feel like they give a little justice back to Dick's character, which Mm -hmm. I really appreciate. But yeah, this moment is pretty jarring and I did not see it coming. But Grady goes on to say to Jack, your son has a very great talent. I don't think you are aware of how great it is, but he is attempting to use that talent against your will. Jack goes on to say, well, it's his mother. She interferes with everything. And Grady says, perhaps they need a good talking to, perhaps a bit more. My girls didn't care for the overlook at first. One of them actually tried to burn it down, but Mm. I corrected them. And when my wife tried to prevent me from doing my duty, I corrected her. I mean, this is so misogynistic. Again, like this legend, this passing down of misogyny, like I don't know how to talk about it. It seems like all of the roles that these men have played is by taking their families out. I do think that I have something a little bit later that we can use to talk about this. Mm -hmm. So we'll kind of cycle back to this as far as like, what does this cycle seem to be saying and where does this cycle seem to be coming from? Do you think that this was intentional by Kubrick to have this like really misogynistic focus like of these family annihilating fathers? I don't know, because it makes me think of, like, what is it that the Overlook is trying to do? Is it trying to, like, gain more souls? Like, Mm -hmm. what is the intention? And do we know that Jack kind of already had these destructive tendencies that that would just be the easiest thing to push on? Or, like, is the Overlook Hotel some kind of symbol, some kind of, like, microcosm for the world? And it's like, yes, the Overlook Hotel is supposed to be this evil place, but is it just a miniature version of the world and the effect that it has on the people in it? fathers who abuse their families and then mothers who try to cover it up and children who try to burn it down but then end up falling victim to the cycle of abuse or something Mm -hmm. i don't know i mean i could see how that might be seen as a stretch but at the same time it is an interesting question to ask what is this hotel supposed to be but then part of me is wondering if there's always just one role and the different people are playing it because i'm thinking Mm -hmm. about the picture at the end of the movie Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. How it's like a familiar face. And I'm wondering, like, are Grady and Jack just filling the shoes of this one person that is possessing all of these people? And it's this one being that just so happens to keep repossessing these characters. I like that. And even Grady says, like, you've always been the caretaker. I've always been here. So is there a role somebody's always destined to play? Like there's one spirit that just tends to take over these guys. Yeah, definitely. Meanwhile, we are back in the apartment. Wendy is, I wrote, trying to hype herself up to leave with Danny. She's chain smoking and yeah. game planning out <laughs> yeah. loud. And I respect the hell out of her for that. She knows what she needs to do. It's just a matter of, at this point, doing it or, or trying to execute some kind of plan to make that possible. Because again, remember, it is still violently snowing outside. But while she's doing this, Danny starts yelling red rum over and over and over again in his Tony voice. Red rum. Yes. When I was a little girl, my dad used to say this to me all the time. Same. Yeah. Okay. What What the fuck, Dad? Speaking of of the cycle of abuse. I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm I'm kidding. Um, That's our soundbite. I do look... (laughs) I do look back on the memory fondly, I have to say. Especially now, I feel like. I feel like this was a full circle moment for me. Anyway, so she goes to him, obviously, to see what is up. And Tony's voice responds, Danny's not here, Mrs. Torrance. 
she can't get to Danny, so she just cries and hugs him. And I'm like, you know what? Yeah. What are you supposed to do? She just tries to show Tony or Danny that she's there. Meanwhile, Jack hears someone trying to contact the hotel via radio, which earlier the police officer that Wendy had contacted urged her to keep the radio on, like just for communication purposes. So Jack hears somebody trying to communicate with the hotel via radio, and he goes in the room, opens up the radio box, and takes some what look like maybe transmitters or plugs from inside the inner workings of the radio, obviously disabling it or preventing it from working as it should. And we know that this person was reaching out on behalf of Dick because Dick wanted them to reach out to the Torrances because he was worried about them because he was receiving The Shining. Mm -hmm. So 8 a.m. the next day, we see Dick on a plane to Denver Mm -hmm. from Florida. And this man, again, from sunny Miami, is on his way to snowy Colorado. He's making a lot of sacrifices here, okay? And he even calls his friend Larry in advance, who must run some kind of snow vehicle company or vehicle company who lets Dick borrow a snowcat upon arrival because he's not going to be able to drive a car up the mountain. And as we see, when Dick arrives, he gets in the snowcat and moves past a police barricade, preventing people from trying to drive on these treacherous mountain roads. We even hear in the conversation with Larry that it's going to be about a five-hour drive in a snowcat to get to the Overlook Hotel. So he's set and determined to make this trek to check on this family. So Wendy is still very much concerned about Danny because Tony is still very much in the driver's seat. So while she leaves Danny to watch TV, Wendy goes down to talk to Jack wielding a baseball bat. Jack is not in the lobby, but she discovers his work. And his work... I'm sorry, this is my favorite part. Is it? It's so funny. His manuscript, his life's work, his writing is just one sentence (laughs) over and over and over again in different page breaks, in different paragraph structures. All work and no play makes Jack a dull boy over and over again. And that is what he has been working relentlessly on for months. I think this is when like my English teacher nerd kicked in to help me find this extra funny. Because like you said, it's written in a bunch of different formats. So sometimes it's just the same line over and over again. But other times it's written as if it's like play dialogue. And sometimes it's written like a block quote. And sometimes it's written just like a continuous run on sentence. Uh, It's so funny thinking of this man who makes such a big deal about his creative genius just sitting and writing a thousand pages of the same sentence over and over again. You know, I used to have a coffee mug in college with this just written on it. (laughs) Like wrapped all the way around. It was all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. That's so funny. So then Jack jump scares her saying, how do you like it? Oh, my gosh. So Jack approaches her and she's holding up the bat in defense. And Wendy is broken down at this point. She is blubbering. She is sobbing. She is trying to reason with him. And Wendy cries that, you know, I think he needs to go to a doctor. And Jack is mocking her, being like, I think he needs to go to a doctor. Like, mocking how upset she is, advancing on her, very much trying to dominate her. And again, he makes it about himself, saying, you're concerned about him. Are you concerned about me? Have you thought about my responsibilities? Has it occurred to you that I've agreed to look after this hotel until May? Does it matter to you that I've been trusted and I signed a contract to accept this responsibility, which he's done nothing for, by the way? Has it occurred to you what would happen to my future if I had failed to live up to my responsibilities? And Wendy is at this point swinging the bat at him, saying, (laughs) get away from her, saying that she's confused, she needs to think things over, and you can tell she just needs to escape the situation. And Jack says, I'm not going to hurt you, Wendy. Darling, light of my life, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm just going to bash your brains in. I'm going to bash them right the fuck in. Give me the bat, Wendy. Stop swinging. 
Wendy finally gets a hit on Jack because at this point, Jack is walking Wendy up a huge flight of stairs in the lobby. And this is a very iconic scene. It has been debated how many times this scene has been filmed. Last I checked, 127 takes. That's what I have as well. Precisely. Mm -hmm. But finally, Wendy gets a hit on Jack. He goes tumbling down the stairs. And Wendy uses this opportunity to drag an incapacitated Jack into a dry storage pantry and locking him in it. I was watching this with our friend Nick. And he said, leave it to Wendy to put this man somewhere. He'll be fine. <laughs> like, she puts, like, she puts him somewhere she does not have to think about him. He's in a fucking pantry. He can sustain himself in there. And what is he eating when we find him? Fucking peanuts and Oreos? Yeah. Like, Jesus <laughs> He tries to manipulate his way out. It doesn't mm -hmm. work. But he tells Wendy, you've got a big surprise coming to you. You're not going anywhere. Go check that snowcat radio and see what I mean. Wendy goes out and checks, finds that the radio is broken, and he has cut the lines to the power on the snowcat. Mm -hmm. So they are very much trapped. But after Wendy leaves to go try to continue her plan of escaping, we see that Grady appears in the pantry to Jack and seems to be asking Jack about his commitment to correcting the situation he is in. And Jack assures Grady that he can get the job done if he just has one more chance. And after promising to correct the situation, we hear the pantry door unlock. So the spirit of Grady or something unlocks the pantry door and Jack is now on the prowl in the hotel once again. Wendy has fallen asleep in her room and Danny appears to be in some kind of trance again. He's carrying a knife and muttering red rum repeatedly around the apartment. He takes Wendy's lipstick and even writes red rum on the bathroom mirror and then begins shouting red rum, which wakes Wendy up. She clutches the knife, grabs it, puts it away from Danny's reach, and then sees in a mirror the reflection of the word red rum written on the other mirror. And in reverse, it reads murder, which I feel like I knew already, again, because of our fathers, but also <laughs> I was watching this with subtitles. So I feel like when you hear it, it sounds like nonsense. But when you see it, it's pretty obvious, like you can tell. And we see the motif of mirrors a lot in this movie. Yeah. So um. You know, like, that's how Tony communicates with Danny is, mm -hmm. like, when they're talking to each other in the mirror. So, like, I'm wondering, is that, like, what Tony was trying to warn Danny about, but Danny couldn't see it because it was backwards? Maybe. That's a really good question. I have some things that I'll say in the post plot that kind of make that make a little bit more sense. Okay. Ooh. So, just then, Jack starts axing his way through mm. the door, mm -hmm. saying, Wendy, I'm home. So Wendy and Danny retreat into the bathroom with the knife. Wendy sends Danny sliding out on a very convenient big-ass snowdrift mm -hmm. out the window. It very much acts like just a very steep hill where she can drop Danny out like the third floor window. But because it had snowed so much and because there was a lot of wind on the mountain, there was very nice drift that he could just like slide all the way down. I have to say, I love that this drift came to play because they showed it so many times they did. in establishing shots. And I was like, oh my God, I can't believe we're actually using this drift. Mm-hmm. But Wendy cannot fit outside of the window. Like, she can't get her body out of the window. So she tells Danny to run and hide. Jack is continuing to axe his way into the apartment. He has gotten through the apartment door and is now axing his way through the bathroom door. The here's Johnny line that was mm -hmm. improv and great, whatever. Don't care. So... <laughs> It's in everything. Everybody does it. I have said on this podcast more times I can count someone Jack Torrance's their way through a door. Yes. <laughs> I've given him enough credit. 
As Jack reaches his hand in to open the door, Wendy slashes at him, which makes him run away. But everyone is distracted when there is the sound of a snowcat approaching the overlook. So this sends Jack running back downstairs, leaving Wendy alone in the bathroom. Meanwhile, Danny has wandered back inside and hides in a kitchen cabinet as Jack searches around. Dick wanders into the entrance and is screaming out, hello, hello, is anybody here? And he is very quickly axed in the chest by Jack shortly after. This is some bullshit. It is some bullshit because it doesn't happen in the book. It's so, does he live in the book? He lives in the book. I felt about this man's death the way I felt about Ricky's death. Ricky. <laughs> like, I'm not going to lie. I was like, you cannot be serious. It was like one of those moments where I was like, I might abandon this. Yeah. But then obviously I can because we have to cover it. But I was like so pissed. And I was like, this does not make sense for Dick. He literally had visions from Miami <laughs> about what was going on. He has been working at this hotel. He knows about the history of the hotel. He would never just walk in, announce himself and let himself be so caught off guard like that. Like, I just, I don't think that makes any sense for Dick's character to die like that. But what I appreciated is as Dick is dying, Danny is screaming out alongside with Dick. Mm -hmm. But we see that replicated really well in Dr. Sleep. So it's that connection where it's yes. like if somebody with The Shining is injured, another person who is connected with them through The Shining also kind of emulates that pain. So I like that they like took that seed and ran with it. But that reveals his location. So Jack goes running after Danny. Danny vacates his hiding spot. Wendy is running around like a T-Rex upstairs. <laughs> yeah, she's... She has a knife and she's just kind of like running around with her elbows Look, at her sides. I'd be doing the same thing. In her me. little robe. She has not abandoned the robe. The robe is here. Or wait, <laughs> no. Is she in like the same little like crew neck double plant? I don't know. She got some outfits in this movie. <laughs> also, okay, okay, okay. How do we want to talk about the bear blowjob? Because I feel what? like... What do you mean what? Where how she looks into the room and she sees somebody in a bear costume giving Whoa, a butler a blowjob? Yes. Well, that's what it is, a, a bear blood. Yeah, but like it's never somebody. Yeah, it is so strange. That's the only time we see that ghost too. I don't even think we see either of those in any other circumstances. Like The Shining is synonymous with that scene. It's been parodied so much. They just breeze right on by it. And so do we. We have to breeze right on by it. But it's what? Somebody in a bear costume is giving a blowjob to a butler. Is it a butler or is it like a rich guy from the party? It's, it's somebody in a tux. Yeah, somebody in a tux. Yeah, that is a thing that happens. I guess maybe is it supposed to be unsettling because it's like sexually deviant? I don't know. I'm just like, I want to know the significance of it. I want to know if it means anything. I don't have anything about that. I wonder, I have something a little bit later, like about Jack's character and specifically this hotel being established as a like a luxurious location, a location where people with a lot of money would go to spend it. This is a location that's rich with alcohol, drugs, sex money, all that kind of thing. So I wonder if this kind of haunting is supposed to showcase that sort of indulgence. I literally just looked at a Reddit while you were talking, and it says that in the book, they mentioned how they used to have weird sex parties at the hotel, and there there was a sex slave that would act as a dog and do tricks. <gasps> yes. So this kind of like goes back to maybe like a theme in horror that we've talked about a lot with like sex being used as a scare tactic. And especially, in, again, in a location like this where a lot of rich people go to spend their money, like who knows what the fuck they're spending their money on. And that also comes into play, too. And I'll talk about this with Jack's character. Like he's somebody who has these aspirations for himself. And so maybe he's really attracted to a location like this where all of these like rich, wealthy, powerful people have been. He wants to be a part of a setting like that. That is a good question. 
I'm curious as to why they didn't try to develop that more if they were going to include that scene. I mean, the movie's already two and a half hours, so they probably had to make some cuts. And we are so close to the end of this. We We are. are We're so close. Jack turns the lights on outside because he sees Danny running into the hedge maze. So he follows Chase and is using his footprints in the snow to direct him as to keep chasing his son. Danny realizes that Jack is chasing him through his footprints, so he retraces his steps and does some trickery and ends up hiding behind a hedge as Jack catches up, and this allows Jack to continually get himself more lost in the maze and turned around as Danny is able to escape the maze and reunite with Wendy. But this is where I had a question. When did Danny come back? Because Tony was in full control with, like, the red rum scene, correct? That's a good point. So when did Danny come back? Like, was that when he got dropped outside? Like, there was no shift to where Tony was taking over. Was Tony only in control to kind of maybe be in connection with Dick to get him back to the Overlook? And then once Dick was there, Tony was like, all right, I'm going to take a back seat again because your savior's here. Oh, wait, he's not because he's dead. But like, we see at a very certain point that Danny is kind of taken back agency of his body when he's running through the hedge maze because Danny is the one who knows how to get out of the hedge maze because we've seen that earlier in the movie with him and Wendy exploring it. Yeah, maybe like once Danny had to go into fight or flight, he came back to himself. Whereas before, maybe Tony was a coping mechanism. Yeah. I don't know, but that's a really good question. Or is it that he left the overlook? Like he went outside. (gasps) Maybe. Maybe that's what it is. That is a compelling theory. I think that's actually what it is. Uh Uh-huh. Oh, Mm. okay. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, Wendy's seeing some fuck shit. I was mad at this. Like, okay, she sees the elevator full of blood. That's fine. But then there was like the dead bodies and cobwebs out of like a fucking haunted attraction. Like, what's all this? (laughs) I don't care. Whatever. Um, Wendy loads Danny up into the snowcat and they drive away as Jack collapses in the maze and freezes to death very anticlimactically. And then we see, to close the movie, a wall full of photographs. And as the camera zooms in on one of the photographs in particular, we see that this picture is from a 4th of July party in 1924, and Jack is seen front and center in the photograph. So this kind of leads back to that theory you and I were discussing earlier. Is this figure somebody who has just possessed many a man over the years, and he is the Overlook, like the Overlook is his own entity? Or, you know, we've seen Jack say, like, I felt like I knew this place. I felt like I knew what was behind every corner. Like, was Jack somebody who was just kind of called to The Shining? Because in some later research that I did, it is kind of confirmed that Jack also had The Shining. That I was curious about that, too. So, like, was that it? Like, is that why he felt familiar with it? So there's a lot of things we could discuss. Yeah. Let's start with the treatment of Shelley Duvall. Yeah, let's do that. we got to talk about our girl Shelley Duvall first and foremost. So current conversations about The Shining usually mention the poor treatment of some cast members on set, specifically Shelley Duvall. So I found some information in the article, How the Shining Changed Shelley Duvall Forever by B.J. Colangelo. He writes, quote, In the years since the release of The Shining, much has been revealed about the horrendous working conditions for all of the cast and crew of the film, but none as extensive or as exhausting as Shelley Duvall. At the time, Duvall was a star on the rise, but Kubrick's treatment of her on set almost made her walk away from acting for good. The magnum opus of his cruelty toward Duvall came from one of the Shining's most iconic scenes, the baseball bat confrontation on the stairs. Kubrick made Duvall and Nicholson shoot the scene a record-setting 127 takes. 
The result of the constant takes were Duvall's hands were shredded raw from gripping the bat for such a prolonged period of time. Her voice was hoarse from crying, her eyes became swollen, and she left the set completely dehydrated. The moments we see on screen of Duvall crying in pain, fear, and exhaustion were not acting, but an actor delivering lines while enduring a trauma response. And I think that's so important to note is like when you're acting, it's not just like completely pretend like you kind of have to put yourself in a place. And then for her to have to like exist in this space, like that's going to affect her as a person outside of her character. It also makes me think of Jennifer Lawrence, for example. Yeah. Like We talked about that role in Mother being so heavy for her. She literally had to take a break from acting for a year. So going on, Colangelo continues, Kubrick's psychological brutalization of Duvall was so severe, her hair began falling out. Quote, to wake up on a Monday morning so early and realize that you had to cry all day because it was scheduled, I would just start crying, Duvall said in an interview with The Hollywood Reporter. In the equally iconic door scene, Jack Nicholson destroyed nearly 60 doors to get the shot to Kubrick's liking, filming this one moment over the course of three days. The scene was mostly improvised, and Kubrick reportedly kept information regarding Nicholson's choices to tear down the door with an axe from Duvall, meaning her reactions are authentic. So I just summarized some other points that Colangelo hits on. Other frustrating and traumatizing examples of treatment included some of Shelley's lines being unexpectedly cut, being kept isolated from, and being ignored by the rest of the cast and crew upon Kubrick's request, and enduring incredibly long days of shooting. The film itself took over 500 days to shoot. Duvall even reported having an anxiety attack on set one day. That's just a little bit, but I'm sure, you know, you can watch interviews with her and read other sources that I think go into a little bit more detail, but that's just to summarize, again, that prolonged, horrible treatment. And it seems like, again, she was the only one that was receiving it. So strange. Yeah, and I think part of the reason the Shelley Duvall thing was so disappointing is because in the book, Wendy is not written to be the way that Shelley Duvall acted the character. And of course, as we're learning through this context, the way that Kubrick wanted Wendy to be depicted is the way that Shelley Duvall acted the character. So all of Shelley Duvall's choices and depictions are very much in line with what Kubrick wanted the character of Wendy to be. However, in the book, Wendy is a strong force and a protective mother. And in the film, she's depicted as a lot more submissive, passive, and protective of Jack's abusive behaviors. Stephen King has even been quoted saying, Shelley Duvall as Wendy is really one of the most misogynistic characters ever put on film. She's basically just there to scream and be stupid, and that's not the woman I wrote about. Kubrick noted that making Wendy into a more mousy character seemed to be more realistic for the purposes of the story, as a stronger woman would be less likely to put up with Jack. Which, eh. Yeah, it's like, I want to be like, yay, Stephen King, but at the same time, I still feel like he missed the mark a little bit. I think there could have been power still in Wendy's character maybe being depicted as a little bit more of like a quote-unquote mama bear, as if to show manipulative people are going to find people to manipulate. And I think that there's harm in thinking that certain personality types are exempt from that. I think somebody like Jack Torrance, with the way that he is, you know, he's going to know how to manipulate people. But I don't think that Wendy's character as depicted in this movie is necessarily stupid. I think she's reluctant. And I think that she hates what's happening. But she gets her son out of there. She moves through the hotel. Like, if she wants to get out of there, she hypes herself up with some chain smoking. Like, it's tough, right? Like, I want more from her. But at the same time, like, I think she's in a really precarious situation. And I and I do feel like I see her try her best to navigate it. And it's hard because if you look at the ending, 
Wendy and Danny win and Jack loses. But yeah. the reason that Jack loses is because Jack got lost in a fucking maze. Well, I like that he loses because he loses. Like, he loses because it's his fault. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's also power in that. Yeah, I think I just would have liked to see Wendy get a hit on yeah. him that just wasn't like a slash on his hand. You know what I mean? Like, totally. I would have wanted to see Wendy outsmarting him somehow, but it was Danny outsmarting him, mm-hmm. which is not to take anything away from the story because Danny is kind of our principal character that we're following aside from Jack. But I wish Wendy got a little bit more of a role in how it ended besides reacting to it. So piggybacking off of that, I'm going to move into my Jack as a narcissist theory. (laughs) So I read an article called How Narcissistic Injury May Contribute to Reactive Violence, a case example using Stanley Kubrick's The Shining by Matthew Merst. And he is a psychologist and he actually wrote several articles featuring Jack Torrance and The Shining. This is one of two that I will be referencing. And this one, of course, has to do with this narcissistic theory regarding Jack's character. I am not a psychological expert, but I feel like the word narcissism and narcissist are used a lot in present conversations. And so I thought it was interesting to explore from a psychologist's point of view how narcissism might have played a role in this film. So this is kind of like an alternate theory that even though we see in the film supernatural forces play a big role in what happens, maybe there's kind of like a more objective way to look at Mm -hmm. what is happening in the hotel, which is maybe Jack is narcissistic. So first, on the meaning of a narcissistic injury, Merst writes, quote, a narcissistic injury is a blow to one's self-esteem. Narcissistic injuries are inevitable and ubiquitous. Life is a series of narcissistic injuries. We do not always attain what we want, nor accomplish what we set out to do. Everyone has physical and intellectual limitations, makes mistakes, and runs into obstacles. A narcissistic injury can provoke feelings of disappointment, sadness, failure, anger, guilt, and or embarrassment. The ability to tolerate narcissistic injuries and learn from them rather than be devastated is an important psychological achievement. As I will demonstrate, Jack Torrance is a grandiose narcissist with unstable self-esteem who experiences his inability to write as a massive narcissistic injury. Jack identifies himself as a writer and takes the caretaker's job specifically to write a book. Thus, when the process stalls, it is not just a case of quote-unquote writer's block, but a tangible marker of failure. Jack may not be the writer that he imagines himself to be. Jack's grandiose self is so tied to being a writer that he is unable to cope with this possibility and regresses severely with deleterious effects on his psychology. Jack hallucinates, sees various quote-unquote ghosts, develops paranoid delusions, and blames his family for causing his failure. This accumulates in reactive violence to remove the perceived threat to his grandiose self. Jack's narcissistic personality is probably organized in the borderline range. Most significantly, an individual whose personality is organized at a borderline level has unstable, poorly anchored self-esteem and will exhibit heightened reactivity, defensiveness, and aggressiveness toward potential threats to his or her sense of self. So then Merce goes on to cite several instances from the film where Jack displays these traits, including accepting the job at the Overlook in the first place, saying that his family will love it when Danny clearly doesn't like the idea at any point. He reacts without empathy when hearing about the 1970 murder, saying, quote, that's quite the story. And identifying himself as a writer when there's nothing in the film to suggest that he's already established as a writer. It seems like he's just starting out in his attempts to be one. 
Merst writes, quote, There is tremendous pressure upon Jack to write something, yet Jack's ambition likely exceeds his talent. As mentioned, there is no evidence that he has actually written anything. Furthermore, the writing process is likely very conflicted for him. Jack tells Wendy that he has, quote, lots of ideas, but no good ones. The result is that for over a month, he is unable to write. Jack experiences this as a failure and narcissistic injury. He has the perfect condition to write, yet he cannot do so. He probably will never write the great American novel. When May comes around and he has not started, let alone finished his book, he will be exposed and feel humiliated. And then Merst follows Jack's narcissistic injury through, again, his increased loss of control over his violent impulses, his increasing severity of hallucinations, and then just kind of outlines how we see that initial injury really just like regress into this extreme violence. So Merst concludes his essay by writing, quote, such violence is most likely to occur when a psychologically vulnerable individual experiences a narcissistic injury. This breaches a grandiose facade and exposes qualities and traits he or she associates with inadequacy and weakness. So I think that this concluding point connects really well to Jack's notably vulnerable position at the start of the film. He's immediately characterized as a recovering alcoholic. He's clearly, through his conversation with Lloyd, the bartender, carrying guilt over accidentally hurting his son months prior. And then, of course, his want to provide for his wife and child in like a specific way. So that's not to say that, you know, vulnerable people are going to ax their families. But (laughs) I think that this psychologist's theory about Jack outside of this supernatural lens is really interesting. And actually, I felt like made his character a little bit more sympathetic to me. Because the first I watched this movie, I thought he was just a big dick with very few redeeming qualities. But through this lens, I felt a little bit more sympathy for him and like, damn, that sucks. Yeah, I mean, I think it's all just exemplify that he has an external locus of control. Like, if Mm -hmm. he doesn't get what he wants, he has to blame other things. Like, again, I'm so stuck on the sperm bank comment. Yeah. I'm so stuck on that he is dismissive of him hurting his son. Like, him even saying, like, I wouldn't touch a hair on that boy's head and then walking it back being like, you know what? I did hurt him. But it wasn't as bad as everyone's saying it to be. Like, he is incapable of taking that level of accountability. Mm -hmm. And I feel like going to the overlook hides him from accountability because he is then just surrounded by reinforcement that he's looking for. It's an echo chamber. And what is an echo chamber but an empty room that's just going to spout back all of your ideas to you? So what is that ballroom? What is the typewriter? What is all of these things? It's just something that's going to confirm his own ideas because there's no one there to challenge him because we know Wendy sure isn't. Danny Mm -hmm. can't. Well, Wendy is clearly scared of him for good reason. I mean, he's very aggressive with her. And so is obviously Danny is clearly afraid of him, too. It also makes me wonder about the choice for the repeated line he types to be all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. I wonder what the significance of that is. It's not something like I can't write or I suck. (laughs) It's like all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Is he feeling somewhere in his mind that he doesn't actually want to be this provider? Mm -hmm. He maybe would rather be not at the Overlook Hotel despite saying he loves it so much and off somewhere else doing something else. Like it, it does feel like his character is somebody that doesn't actually really want to work. He doesn't actually upkeep the hotel. He doesn't actually write anything. And in fact, when he does, it's about how he's not getting enough, quote unquote, playtime. 
I think that that is something that I, I'm sure people have probably written about, too. I mean, what could that mean? That's very deliberate. And the fact that he wrote that line like a million times, like, why that line, right? Anyway, so speaking of fun little things to think about, this mm-hmm. is a crazy theory. And it's one of many. Like, there's it's, so yes. many theories in this movie of what it's about, what it's revealing. And we're not going to cover all of them because it would take fucking forever. Mm-hmm. But this, I think, is one that is most, like, discussed. You can find this in many different sources. I got this from another Matthew Merst article that he wrote two years after the article that he wrote that I just read from. This article is called Lost in the Labyrinth, Understanding Idiosyncratic Interpretations of Kubrick's The Shining. Merst discusses some recurring theories about The Shining that have emerged in popular culture and their psychological significance. So again, I'm not going to focus too much on the psychological elements here. I'm not an expert. I don't know how to interpret all of them. But I'm just focusing on this one theory about... (laughs) the 1969 moon landing and the theory that The Shining might be commenting on it somehow. So Merst writes, quote, in Room 237, a documentary film about interpretations of The Shining, Jay Widener argued that The Shining was Kubrick's coded confession that he faked the Apollo 11 lunar landing footage on behalf of the U.S. government. According to Widener, the United States needed a propaganda victory in the Cold War era space race against the Soviet Union, and Kubrick was the only American filmmaker with the necessary technical expertise to create the footage. Kubrick was racked with guilt for complying and seeded The Shining with oblique confessional clues. What is Widener's evidence for this interpretation? Danny, while playing with toy cars on the floor, wears a sweater emblazoned with a rocket that has Apollo 11 embroidered on it. Danny is drawn to room 237. The moon is about 237,000 miles from Earth. A key for room 237 reads, room no for number 237, the capital letters contain an anagram for moon, conveying that room 237 is the moon room, i.e. the soundstage on which Kubrick shot his fake footage. The carpet looks like a rocket launch pad, the quote-unquote all in Jack's manic mantra, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy, can be read as A11 for Apollo 11. The twin Grady girls allude to the NASA Gemini missions, one of which ended in the death of three astronauts in 1967. There are cans of Tang in the kitchen pantry. Tang is a powdered fruit-flavored drink touted by its manufacturer for its use by astronauts. Several scenes are filmed using front projection. Kubrick, in 1969, used this technique to create images of humans on the moon in 2001, a space odyssey. Jack's emotional turmoil supposedly mirrors Kubrick's own angst about his deal with the government. For example, Jack's rant about contractual obligations to his employer. So, <laughs> so like, I, I mean, I think things like this are really fun to just mull over. <laughs> and especially because the idea that The Shining could be connected to the moon landing is, is such a far stretch. But I mean, there are interesting little things to point out here, I guess. So in the book, it was actually room 217. Mm. In the movie, it was changed to room 237 because the hotel that they were shooting at didn't want people scared to stay in Mm. room 217. 
But then again, it's like, why did they use 227? Why didn't they use 207? I mean, is it just that like the hotel didn't have 237 as an actual room number? So that's just the closest one that they went with? Maybe. That's a good question. I don't know. But like there's little things in there where it's like, okay, certainly. But room 237, I've seen the documentary before. Like they have huge disclaimers at the front of the documentary that it is in no way supported by the Kubrick Foundation or anything Kubrick ever did. So these are all just people like throwing ideas around. And I think it's so fun. I mean, (laughs) yes, right. so many fun little historical things that people like will make a movie about. And then people will be like, it's about that. And they're like, well, I didn't intend that. But if you read it that way, cool. And I think this is one of those things. But I think this movie just has a lot in it. I mean, like, it's two and a half hours long. It is so long. It is so long. Obviously, cinematically, it's so fun to look at. Yes. The best showcase for the themes of our podcast, perhaps not. But it's an iconic movie. And I'm really excited to talk about Dr. Sleep. So I feel like this is a really good launch pad. Oh my God. (laughs) To talk about Dr. Sleep. That's such a good way to put it. Dr. Sleep, I'm really excited for that conversation because, again, I said this before, I feel like it gives some justice to specifically Dick and also Wendy in this film, which I really like that dedication to kind of revitalizing these characters and, and giving them more narrative like they deserve. But this is a classic movie that I had never seen before. So I feel glad that I finally got to watch it and now I can move on with my life. And we're kicking off 2024 in a strong way. We are, yes, with our winter theme films. So if you want to follow us on our journey now that we are back for the year, please follow us on Instagram at The Horrors Podcast. Or if you would like to get in touch with us via email, feel free to email us at thehorrorspodcast at gmail.com. And until next time, we're The Horrors. Bye. Bye.